The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of with the right hand uppercut. It was Clint Eastwood. Club cake, he nailed him with it. You mean Dirty Harry himself, huh? Yes. The mayor, no less. Gives it for the right again. Reverse pressing kick. Back flip. Off the ropes. Excuse me. This guy is a show-off. And you know what the Hart Foundation does to show-offs? Takes them into their family. <laughs> oh, no, we don't. Like Danny Davis. Hey, Danny's never going to show up. He's one of the greatest referees of all time, and now he's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Former. Look at this. Back trip right over the top. Gibbs doesn't even know where he is. Backbreaker. He jerked him up there. Referee calling for the bell. It's all over. You know, he would never do that to the hitman. He would never do that to the animal, baby. What a victory by this youngster, Tom McGee. Let's get the official word. Here is your winner, Tom Let's get it rolling right here, right now. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you are listening to episode number 404 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast. As we roll into an episode here, something that I guess you could say is uh, is a surreal moment for the two-man power trip as we sit here and listen to an interview with the one and only Mega Man, Tom McGee, a white whale, if you will, in the podcast interview genre. 
and Tom McGee sitting down with both John and myself to discuss everything that went on with this just absolutely eclectic Holy Grail match with Bret the Hitman Hart that finally saw the light of day here in 2019. Tom McGee has not had many chances to get his words out there into the wrestling world, and we are going to deliver it today in an uh, interview that took a long time to put together. But still, uh, when you hear the final result, you will definitely know more about this uh, amazing specimen of a man named Tom McGee who made Vince McMahon absolutely lose his shit and crown him the next Hulk Hogan or the next world champion of the WWF. So, John, as I welcome you in here now, I mean, it's going to be a lot of focus on this match itself, this holy grail that we finally saw this year but a lot of cool stuff to learn about in this interview with Tom McGee, including all the other uh, backstories that went along with that WWF tenure. Yeah, this one was so cool. And obviously, Chad, as, as longtime fans as me and you are, and tape traders and, and things of that nature, we were always interested in Tom McGee, especially that Holy Grail match against Bret Hart. We wanted to get our hands on that VHS tape. We wanted to somehow... We just heard stories about it. We wanted to know what was the big deal. I mean, we've seen Tom McGee wrestle, you know, maybe against DiBiase and Anderson, but Arn Anderson, excuse me. But what was the, you know, the big thing about this Bret Hart match? What what made Vince fall in love with him? We just wanted to see it. We had to see it, and finally, we were able to, and finally able to connect with Tom McGee because he's one of those guys. When we started, it's like, oh, what random guys can we find? Like a guy that nobody would even think of that we could interview on the show, and we couldn't track him down. Couldn't track him down, and a few months ago actually ended up tracking him down well before he was booked for Connie's StarCast event in Vegas. So we were even talking to him well before that, but it just took a while to kind of set the inventory built to set the interview in motion and kind of get everything done and really, you know, get him to talk about his career, talk about his time at WWF, and it was well worth the wait because this is going to be, you know, speaking about Bret Hart versus him being a hidden gem, this is going to be one of our hidden gems. He was just great. He just was so honest with us, so open. We not only talk about his run with the WWF and his match against Bret Hart, but we talk about his whole career as far as powerlifting, bodybuilding, him just being in phenomenal shape, him wrestling in Canada, him wrestling in Japan. We kind of go through the gamut, and we talk about a lot of different things, and I think it's a really cool interview, uh, just about an hour long, so it's not uh, anything short and sweet. It's really nice and really uh, succinct, and you get a lot of good information out of this, and I really think it's cool that not only you know to get him finally on and him to be such a rare interview, but to him to, for him to open up so much and to learn so much more about him. I think that was the coolest part about getting on Mega Man. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely wanted to talk all about the uh, the match, and it was like, all right, we got to do like a slow build to it, and just to learn about his background and learn about why did he get into the powerlifting and the weightlifting. Uh, when he did, it turns out he got into it like I would think at least ten years before I thought he actually did, you know, to get into it as a very very young little little boy really, uh, to see what he would become in terms of what he looked like. And obviously, after he was done with wrestling, kind of getting into the acting world, I mean, he's perfect to throw in front of a camera. So it was uh, a natural progression. But learning that backstory and learning about how the Hart family really did kind of tie into his wrestling debut, that the Bret Hart match being that. Holy Grail, it was just kind of like an oddity that comes across all the time in professional wrestling. He got started in Calgary, and his first big break in the WWF was wrestling Bret Hart in that infamous dark match. But I think the backstory itself is something that you can really 
take and, and break down and really uh, kind of enjoy. And, and we get a little we get a little breakdown of what he thought of each Hart family member, which I thought was very cool. But back to it's back to the Holy Grail. John, we talked about this match at length. You know, we've talked about it with Shane on the Triple Threat podcast. You know, we've heard other people in the business talk about it. Obviously, at StarCast, they uh, brought him in to do a panel-style um, Q&A with Bret Hart. So it was pretty cool to see the two of them up on the stage together. But for us, the hardcore wrestling fan, the old-school wrestling fan, you know, really, what did it mean to finally get our hands on this match and see the, is it the beauty of Bret Hart and what he can do inside of a ring? Or was it to show off that athleticism of somebody like Tom McGee? It was awesome to finally get to see this match after so many years of hearing about it and wanting to see it. It's just so great. And you just see, you kind of just see glimpses of what Vince McMahon saw. Perhaps, you know, the him saying the next Hogan, you, you really just never know. And you can almost not say that about a guy making his debut. You got to, you know, let the guy build and create his character and kind of, you know, learn more and grow more in the wrestling business before you kind of throw that label on it. Because that is just one of those things that's like, wow, that's a. Uh, a big burden there, big, you know, big shoes to fill. You're going to kind of throw that line out there. I mean, that is crazy. Even Roman Reigns. Now you can't even throw that on him. It's just too much of a way to carry like next Hogan. Jeez. Ooh, you know, crazy, crazy to say things like that, but you see the potential guy is six, five, two seventy five, just looks phenomenal, just in phenomenal shape. Then he's doing moonsaults. Then he's doing flips. Then he's doing front flips like Mega Man literally does. Then you see the strength that he has. He finishes second in the strongman competition. He's a power lifter. He's just an amazing athlete. He's got a little bit of a karate background. I mean, all these different things. You're like, man, this guy has all the physical tools. He's just absolutely an amazing, you know, an Adonis of a man, just a great athlete. And he's not a small man. So you got 6'5", 275 doing this stuff. You see guys today, and we talked to Tom in the interview about this, you see guys today that are, what, 5'6", 5'7", 150, or 175, doing those same moves. Yet on 100 pounds in about uh, six inches or so, it's like, wow, this even more so than that. But it's like, man, this guy is just an amazing athlete. So you kind of see a little bit of a glimpse of what Ben saw. Like, man, this guy, maybe he's green, or maybe we have something but man this guy is a great piece of clay to work with he's amazing and on the other hand you look at bret hart and pat patterson saw it obviously and gorilla monsoon and guys like that so i was like man this guy bret hart is amazing he can make anybody look good he's the excellence of execution wherever you want him to be in the ring boom he's there and it's not so obvious that he's doing it either it's just masterful masterful work and i love like you mentioned with the hard family and tom mcgee it really does come full circle it trains with the heart trains with Stu, live with the heart foundation train in the dungeon and boom comes through all the way through working stampede in his first match in the wbf is against bret hart and it's a great match so it's just very very um interesting the way it worked out and how it became full circle i just absolutely love it and to think it almost was against Hercules and how, you know, my oh my, which uh, history would have been changed <laughs> for sure if it was Hercules instead of uh, Bret Hart, who is arguably the greatest of all time as far as in-ring wrestling goes. And probably not even arguably from my standpoint. He's definitely the, the greatest in-ring. So I love it from the Vincent Band point of view, this piece of clay, this guy, we can mold him and really make him into something. And the Pat Patterson point of view, which is the point of view that I think uh, me and you saw and identified with the most was like, man, Bret Hart is, is just amazing. And it's just such a great wrestler. But I also want to throw in this other little tidbit. So I was talking to Barry Horowitz 
And I was just saying, hey, do you remember Tom McGee? He said, of course, you know, freak of an athlete, freak of nature. Vince loved him, blah, blah, blah. So I'm thinking, okay, Vince loved him. I go, well, what happened? Like, he, how did he kind of fall off? And he said, well, to be honest, Vince fell in love with the ultimate warrior. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, I never heard that before. I didn't even think about that. And it's like, wow. So Vince kind of maybe didn't fall off McGee because anything really McGee did and maybe he, he could have stuck with him longer and molded him into the star or what you know whatever if he was too green kind of molded him but Barry was kind of saying Vince kind of fell in love with the warrior maybe that's why Tom McGee fell off the map so I just thought that was another little tidbit and a little twist to throw in there as well yeah that's a damn good point and also you reminded me about the Hercules line and I'm not gonna lie I kind of wish that we could see a Tom McGee versus Hercules match I know it'd be like a a lot of brute force being thrown back and forth but uh hey one can dream can we we can sit here and wish uh, for a Tom McGee Hercules match but great great point about Barry Horowitz because obviously he would be in the uh the know as it relates to uh, th- those topics, because I'm sure Barry was on the other end of many of those conversations as to who should be in the ring with that guy that's getting the shine in the dark match and kind of the uh, the management and the uh, the office is sitting there looking at it and saying, like, what can we do with this guy? And uh, Barry Harwich, yeah, great mind for uh, something uh, of, of a topic like Tom McGee. So, John, before we wrap it up and get it on over to Tom McGee, give me one other thing to look out for in this interview. You know, it's just so interesting, and I found it almost like crazy when he was talking about it because we were talking about Japan and and the matches he's had, and he knew right away. You know, we're talking about Ricky Choshu, and that was a good match. He made it vented, you know, in Japan, just unbelievable. And Choshu's just a legend. But then he threw in the match against Wajima, and he knew that it was a hated match. And he said, uh, so many fans don't like it, but he really liked it. And I just thought that was so interesting because when you read about Tom and you see all these things, they do say that Wajima match, people didn't like it, they didn't care for it, Meltzer hated it, blah, 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 whatever. I just thought that was so interesting. He picked up on that. He knew it. He was kind of very familiar with it. But he liked it. He enjoyed it. And he was saying, you know, it's just not for everybody. And and just goes to show you that sometimes the wrestler in the ring will like a match and the fans won't. And it's just funny to think like the fans think they know more than the wrestlers and the people outside the business think they know more than the guys that are actually in it. So I just thought that was a very, very interesting part of of that interview. And I just really think that, you know, sometimes uh, it isn't what the fans really think or say. You got to go more with the wrestlers and things like that. And I just know the funny thing. Uh, you kind of find, find this funny that uh, Dave Meltzer mentioned that uh, Tom McGee does kind of look like Kenny Omega. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he does. And we know that uh, that's one of Meltzer's favorite topics is anything uh, Kenny Omega. So that's yes. a great, uh, great, yes. great point. But yeah, look, another great interview here. If you haven't heard us before and this is the first time you're checking us out, go back and listen to the archive and, and see what uh, this show is all about because listening to this this show here today with Tom McGee is what this show is all about. It's bringing you a rare guest. It's bringing you a first-time podcast guest and getting these stories out that you may have heard or you hear other people talk about. Well, guess what? You're coming right to the source, and we're going to give you the guy telling you the story straight over our airwaves. And this is a big one, Tom McGee talking about the Holy Grail match. So tell a friend, tell anybody you want, tell your mother, tell your grandmother. I don't care. As long as they listen to this show, that's all we're concerned about. So... Let's do this. Let's wrap it up nice. Let's get it on over to the Mega Man, Tom McGee, and let's strap in 
for a little talk with possibly, possibly one of the rarest guests to ever grace the airwaves of the two-man power trip, the Mega Man himself, Tom McGee. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr. Glenn Kane, Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a former world champion powerlifter, a former WWE superstar once the second strongest man in the world he is known as the mega man tom mcgee please enjoy Well, joining us on the line tonight is a former WWF superstar, a man who is known as one of the strongest men in the world. You've heard a lot about him lately in the world of professional wrestling. He is the one and only Mega Man, Tom McGee, joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Mr. McGee, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on your show. It's good to be here. Oh, it's our absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, obviously, your name on the tip of the tongues of most of the uh, hardcore wrestling fans, but for a lot of us longtime wrestling fans, this is an interview that's a long time coming, and we uh, we were really happy to uh, get you on and talk a little bit about your wrestling career. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I thank you for your interest. So basically, you know, how are things going in the uh, the world of Tom McGee before we get into uh, all the craziness of the last few months and the revelation of the match finally seeing the light of day that we'll get into? But how's everything going on in the uh, the world of Tom McGee? Well, I guess 
like most people in 2019, life is pretty interesting, you know, um, and there's a lot of social and technological advancements that are being made. And uh, I still find some continuity, though, in in, uh, doing sports like I always have um, and still doing, um, you know, some surfing, still lifting weights, of course and doing resistance training and also, uh, you know, riding my bike and uh, uh, doing some inline skating and, you know, just a variety of tasks. we got beautiful mountains here in Southern California, so I, I get out and I hike in those, and lots of interesting people have have moved here. So, you know, it's uh, the company is good. And um, and so life's, life's amazing. It's interesting, and uh, I love it. I'd like it to last as long as possible. The beautiful, yeah, the California uh, weather obviously never hurts when you throw on those uh, inline skates. I just uh, picked up a pair of inline skates recently myself. It's uh, a very stress-relieving activity, so it's uh, it's good to see you're active. I don't look quite like Tom McGee, though, when I don the skates. We have those, uh, we have a really great bike path that's right on the ocean, so it's cool to go up the California coast, you know, and it's just bikes and, and skates and, and, uh, skateboards. And, and so that's kind of a, a special thing that this region has, um, you know, cause most states obviously don't have an ocean seaboard. And so I try to take, a, you know, make good use of that. Oh, that's fantastic. That's uh, it's an excellent way to, uh, to, to, like I said, get the stress out sometimes and to do some exercise. But obviously when we think of Tom McGee, we think of the Mega Man, we think of the physique, we think of the pictures, we think of uh, you know all your countless uh, strongest man uh, profiles and your events. How did you keep your body looking as good as you did for so many years? I mean, it was such an impressive thing to look at you and to even look back at these pictures and see you were such an amazing specimen of, uh, of that physical form? Well, uh, I started lifting really early. I mean, I started working out at five and then lifting at five years of age with my dad working out. And then I was lifting weights by age 13 and uh, very dedicated to it. Just loved it, loved applying myself to something and also the measurability of uh, lifting. You know, you know exactly um how much weight is on the bar or a machine. It's not like you have to, you know, guess what your performance was. Um, like in many sports, it's not so obvious, but with, with weightlifting, it's really clear how you're progressing. And I, I, I like that. So it was a long time of progressing through different ranks and, and also a lot of different, uh, sports interested me. So I competed or, um, at least participated in an awful lot of different sports, but the lifting was always the centerpiece of it. And, um, once I got in, so I got some good habits and some good technique. And, uh, once I ended up in the WWF, of course, the WWF has, has got a lot of people who are, you know, embracing that belief system and, and also are just fanatical exercisers all the way to the top. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Vince McMahon and, uh, but for myself, um, a lot of it involved, you know, deferring gratification. I would not go out and, uh, you know, uh, party or have indulgence, 
uh, in that way, I would always go to the gym and then rest and get ready for my next uh, match or performance. So it took a lot of focus. And, um, you know, not so much, you don't have to really give up because it's the thing you most want to do anyway. Yeah, obviously that was a body era, and you fit in so perfectly with the uh, the guys of that time and how you all looked, and it was so impressive to see. But who were some of the influences that you had as you were kind of getting that weightlifting and that powerlifting career off the ground? I mean, at the age of five, the people uh, like the early Joe Weider athletes, the early Mr. Olympias were certainly uh, inspirations. And then uh, the muscular actors like Sylvester Stallone and, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was 13 years old, and it was the center calendar in the, in the newspaper came, and you opened it, and there was Arnold doing his uh, double biceps pose. And you were just like, wow, that's amazing, and, and I would like to do that too. And that becomes a target and inspiration you got people like, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, you know, in Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, and then uh, Clint Eastwood also was, you know, very well felt. And so you saw those examples, and they inspired you, not just in the physique, but also in the kind of actions that their characters took. Yeah, and both actually having connections to wrestling as well. So it's a uh, it's a good class to definitely be around. And obviously, Arnold's uh, you know weightlifting uh, influence reigned supreme for a very very long time. And you know, uh, really, I mean, you followed in line with a lot of what they did as well as with the acting that you'd go on to do. Uh, as well, but you know, making that transition into wrestling, obviously, you know, for somebody like you, somebody who did work out a lot and did weightlift, I mean, it was a good natural way to kind of uh, show off the body as well as do something very physical. So, how did you get kind of drawn to the wrestling world? Well, I I was already aware of wrestling because there was a strong wrestling uh, circuit uh, in Vancouver, west coast of Canada where I grew up and so I had seen wrestling from a very small age, not only on television, but uh, live. And um, wrestling is in a way you, you can understand a lot of it's easy to understand, but some of it's not. So there's a deeper level of what's going on there. That's kind of impenetrable. And so you get this kind of superficial um, uh, understanding when you see wrestling and then, but you, you wonder about a lot of the rest and you make guesses, but you don't really know. And, um, and it's a world where that is and always remains true. But, um, growing up on uh, West coast, I had the privilege to see amazing athletes like, uh, Don Leo Jonathan, who was, I think about a six, six and 300 pounds and could do, you know, was extremely agile and had a great physique not just in appearance, but he could also do amazing things. And there was a number of really impressive uh, athletes with with then Sandor Koufax's um, uh, wrestling. Yeah, and I mean, let's not even discount, obviously, your athletic ability, too, and the things that you could do in the ring. So it's like a natural uh, progression for somebody like you to add that kind of showmanship to uh, what you do and what you did. Uh, but getting kind of tied into like the stampede wrestling world and th- that whole side of things, what was your introduction to uh, the first wrestling uh, people uh, in your career? Um, I'd already done a lot of the weightlifting and powerlifting 
uh, things I did. I mean, first I started in the bodybuilding, and then uh, I was Mr. British Columbia. I wanted to get more size. I noticed the powerlifters had more size because I was tall. I wanted to fill up my seat, so I started to do some heavy lifting. Ended up with a, a very good lifter named Roger Daggett and, uh, as a coach and uh, a training partner. and Kept getting stronger and stronger, and my body just really accepted all that. And then ended up winning the World Powerlifting Championships, followed by winning what I think was the best strongman contest in that era, which was, um, you know, winning the, the, um, the World Powerlifting IPF, which is the most highly regarded powerlifting organization winning their their top class opened up the strongman world to me where really i was invited to everything and then uh uh winning three times the uh, challenge louis sear which was i believe in the mid late 80s the best international strongman contest in the world and then competing also very well and setting some world records in the uh the world strong the, the contest put on by Trans World International called the World's Strongest Men's Contest. So getting some notoriety and some name out there, doing that, then but trying to monetize and maximize, you know, um, what you can do with your physique. So you're looking around, you've got these abilities, you've done these things, but you're going, hmm, what are my options? What can I do? And I also had a little draw to football, so I gave that a try, and uh, was somewhat successful. I did get to play some professional football. But then that kind of, um, you know, went away. And, and at the same time, uh, I saw the uh, WWF, I think it was an early WrestleMania, and I was so taken aback by what they were doing. And it was so different than the professional wrestling I'd seen before. It was to a whole other level of, a, of what someone could imagine or contrive or manifest. And I was immediately drawn to it and wanted to wanted to um, get into it. And I was really excited. It captured my imagination. And that's the best thing in life when you can find something that really sweeps you up in a way with it that you're excited about. And so um, then I had my uh, manager friend make contact with uh, the WWF. And then they referred me to Stampede Wrestling. And we made contact with Stampede. And then uh, it was arranged that I would go up and, um, and do, uh, you know, uh, learn the business and wrestle for Stampede Wrestling. It's kind of funny, the connection that you'd end up having to Bret Hart all these years and getting the start in Stampede Wrestling. It's almost like... Uh, you know, life imitating art. And I'm sure maybe that might've played something into the pairing with Brett as well. But, you know, what were your first impressions of Stampede and the Hart family? Um, that I'll get to that a little later because that pairing was very fortunate for me. But my first impressions of them were, um, they were really likable and really interesting. And so much of that world was such, um, a, so different. I don't want to say shock, but I think at first, uh, the wrestling world, when I was first immersed in it, coming from the other sports and things I've done, it was somewhat incomprehensible. Um, because the culture was just had so many uh, nuances and different elements to it uh, that were very different than the much more controllable um, sports 
that I had been, you know, uh, competing in for many years as a professional. But anyway, the Hart family were lovely. I moved into their um, their big mansion up on Coach Hill, and uh, I, the wrestling ring was outside. There was a dungeon. It's called uh, fondly named the Dungeon, with a, a wrestling room down in the basement. And um, it's they have a big family, and uh, it's full of all sorts of drama and intrigues. And the different members of the family are um, definitely have their own personalities and quite different. If there's a through line in the family, it's uh, they actually are as a group quite well educated at University of Calgary and. And um, they definitely had that end of it going on, too, not just the physical, but there was quite a few academics in the family, but but not in a, like, a stodgy way at all, but in a dynamic kind of um, where the rubber meets the road kind of way. Like, if there was some theory or some principle, they were going to cast it and put it out there. And so it was uh, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> the Hart family really being like the first family of professional wrestling and with the uh, the ties from Stu going all the way back to his era and then obviously through the rest of the sons and even the daughters and now the grandchildren. I mean, really, you know, royalty, so to speak. But was there any uh, any specific members of the Hart family that you, you bonded with uh, at all or was there anyone that you really uh, kind of took to right away? Well, of course, um, I had, I really had a great relationship with Stu Hart. And, uh, you know, I had great conversations with him and I listened to him very attentively and, uh, I really cared about what he thought. And, uh, I didn't even realize at the moment how much I cared about what Stu Hart thought. Uh, I found that out later because it was some juncture things weren't going particularly well. And, um, I, I just I really felt the, the the angst of the possibility of disappointing Stu, and um, you know as a as an athlete you learn to like be really tough and strong with like you know if you're in a strongman contest and and one event goes bad you can't you can't let that carry that into the next event or it'll affect it, your whole performance so you have to learn to very quickly recover shrug it off and get ready to go 100% again with a clean slate and not drag anything with you. So I had that ability to try and, if something didn't go well, to try and figure out what it was as quickly and precisely as you can and then move forward. But I, it gave me pause when I thought, in this one instance, I might disappoint Stu. It actually took me back, and it, it, it took more than a normal effort for me to recover. But... Um, I had a lot of great conversations with him, and uh, he had a lot of gravity as a as a man. You you, um, I I'm just so glad that I you know had the experience with with Stu. But for my training, I was assigned to um, to Bruce Hart, and Bruce is a very thoughtful, interesting person. We didn't always get along. Most of the time, we did, but we had some. Um, disagreements usually about something small and significant but he was very very bright and very insightful about a lot of the subtle aspects of the um, wrestling business and he you know 
had notions about anti-heroes and he explained all that. We would talk about different um, scenarios and then we'd go see the movies and, and kind of care, put it also and characterize it through some of the movies we saw. Um, other of the brothers would step in from time to time and give their opinion. When Davy Boy was in town, I spent quite a, boy, uh, a bit of time with Davy Boy Smith. Uh, he was big into lifting. And so we would go to the gym together, and uh, he and I resonated quite well together. Um, and his wife, Diana, also really fond memories with her. Such a, a wonderful person. And then uh, Owen was there all the time, you know, younger, um, always upbeat and positive. Um, very likable guy and a good guy. Uh, so tragic what happened to him falling to his death during a match but um and then you're up on this in this na- on this mansion and you're wrestling outside the house and you can look down off this kind of hill mountainside and you see all of calgary before you stretching out in the distance to the canadian rockies snow-capped far away and uh, it was but it's got a western feel to it and it, it was just uh it was an amazing experience. Yeah, that's a beautiful picture painted of what was uh, actually really going on at the time. And each one of those Hart family members that the wrestling audience has gotten to know, we can see that each one of them has something else that they bring to the table, whether it's Bruce being the creative one and Owen being so dynamic and Brett being such, you know, the technician and Keith being as special as he is and Ross, they all have their own kind of thing to them. Uh, but, you know, spending the time with Stu and and the guys and, and learning the craft there, how long is it before you kind of get passed back in the direction of Vince and the WWF? So, um, you know, it was a long time ago, and it's a long time since I've been recalling these events. So, um, some of it, I talk about it more, I remember much more. But I'm not sure. I think it must have been six months or a year at least. And I also had some tours in Japan. But I'm not sure what happened when and where, whether I was to the WWF first or after. And I was in the WWF a couple of times. Uh, and so uh, I was also sent out to wrestle with... Uh, oh, I should go back to something else you said before I move forward, just for a sec. I don't want to lose the thought of this. I didn't see Brett so much, except he he was working all the time, and Jim Neidhart. And so they didn't come around so much. And I think when they got off the road, I might see them here or there. They might come down to the matches and watch it briefly. But then I think he wanted to be with his family. So you would maybe see him or meet him. And he's a somewhat of a reserved person, too. He's a lot like his dad, in a way. He's got a lot of gravity but he's a little bit reserved and he's taking everything in. He's very observant, but I think he wanted to be with his family. So we wouldn't hang around that much. You'd see him briefly and you were excited to see those guys, uh, you know, to see what you could learn from them or also to hear any input from them. But then they were gone. Um, uh, then back to the WWF. So at some point too, they sent me out, or more, I don't know what term I should use, more reprogramming or whatever. Um, 
and I was sent to Boston to also work with Killer Kowalski, Walter Kowalski, a very famous wrestler, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I learned some different uh, styles and some different things from him. And of course, I learned some other things from um, in Japan. And uh, oh, that's true too. When I was in Calgary, Mr. Hito from Japan also was training me too. So I learned a lot. There was a lot of different chefs working with uh, preparing me for whatever was going to come my way. And then obviously the infamous WWF debut, October 7th, 1986, Rochester, New York versus Brett, the Hitman Hart. And it's crazy to think of I hope legend. It infamous. Well, it's iconic and legendary. Just such a great match, but obviously it yeah. became famous because so, it yeah. got lost. <laughs> right. I see. I see. Uh, yeah. Um, so I went in that night and uh, there was so much going on. It was like, you think that all of the different sports and, you know, uh, McGee on deck in, in 10 minutes or McGee on deck in five minutes to lift or to compete in this sport or that would prepare you a little bit. But there was such sensory overload when I showed up at a WWF taping. Thank goodness I already had that previous experience because there was a lot going on. It was really bedazzling. Uh, so many um, amazing athletes there, some who are just, you know, like raw uh, physical ability uh, in the typical sense of an athlete, others who are amazing entertainers, and they're all there together. And then you've got these creative marvels who are running the whole thing, and there's kind of a plan, but then they're, they're on the wing, too, and figuring it out as they go. And, and, and you've got uh, tens of thousands of people in the audience. And um, I was being shoveled all over the place. And people were looking at me, and I was being taken from this location to the other. And then you would hear people saying things uh, you'd catch in your earshot. I would go by, and you know, some of it would be complimentary, some of it wouldn't be, or somebody shouted out, and somebody in the authority, I don't remember who, shouted out, put him with. Hercules Hernandez, and I listened the tone of it. I listened to the tone, and it sounded like an adversarial. The tone sounded adversarial. So I'm going, you know, you're trying to adjust to whatever um, might come your way, and you're immediately you're picking up the information. So anyway, when it finally came around to who uh, that I was going to wrestle with, Brad, that was um, that was comforting and reassuring in a way because um, I was trained in a style that he was the best example of. So, um, and he would have been, if anyone would have been aware of what uh, I could do or couldn't do, um, sight unseen, because I don't know if he'd ever seen me wrestle before. And nobody there probably had. Uh, I, I had the, you know a good shot of being able to to do some of my my moves and my things uh, to, to showcase what I could do in, in that instance. 
Hey, let's pause for one second here and tell you about our sponsor, Blue Chew and BlueChew.com. Guys, remember the days when you were ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in the bedroom with a little help from the Triple Threat Podcast and the two-man power trip. So listen up, BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they are chewable, they work up to twice as fast as any other pill so you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises now if you know anything about our show we've always got to be ready but with blue chew if you can benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts then blue chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance most guys talk a good game but blue chew helps you follow through so right now we've got a special deal for our listeners visit bluechew.com get your first shipment for free when you use the promo code franchise and just pay five dollars shipping again use the promo code franchise and pay just five dollars shipping again it's bluechew.com b-l-u-e chew.com use the promo code franchise and try it for free courtesy of your friends over at the two-man power trip of wrestling and the triple threat podcast blue chew is the better cheaper and faster choice and we thank them for sponsoring our podcast absolutely yeah and it's quite a debut and it's so interesting because when we used to tape trade years ago, there was no footage of this tape. We couldn't get this tape. We we tried to get this tape. There was always talk of this infamous match, this lost match that was a great match. It was your WWF debut, and obviously it really showcased you. But also, which people you know found out later, that Brett was a really great wrestler. He wasn't just some tag team wrestler. He was a great wrestler. So when this actually popped up not that long ago, it was an assistant of an assistant of Brett actually had a copy of the tape and they found, you know, the quote unquote lost tape. It was just amazing because it's the Holy grail to guys like me and Chad, who were tape traders that we never saw this match. Did you know it was as revered and, and this many people wanted to see this match? I know. I knew there was a lot of buzz about the match and that it had never been seen, but I don't, I didn't know what happened to the tape. I just assumed that the WWE had it in their possession and, and um, I, but I didn't know, I'd never seen it. I got to see it in Las Vegas recently, mm-hmm. and I was, I was impressed and amazed. Um, there was a number of things in it that impressed me. I mean, I was really big and heavy at the time. I was amazed at how uh, capably uh, Bret Hart was able to lift me. Uh, and I also was, you know, I was glad that I got to show some of the athleticism that I worked so hard to to create over many decades of of applying myself, and then the training, of course, that uh, the Hart family had put into me. So, um, you know, as an athlete, that's a lot of what you want to do. You want to show the hard work, also that you put in, but also uh, that everyone else has put into you. Because you've had a lot of to do. When anyone who does a good performance, um, they've had a lot of trainers and a lot of people really put their their heart and their soul into giving you those abilities. And so it's great when it all when 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 you get a chance to do that. So I was stoked to be there, and then meeting Vince McMahon, getting to talk to him, and uh, I mean, it was just um, it's a kind of synergy in there. The the combination of all those individuals brought together uh, 
wow, it's just the, the, the power of the light emanating from that was just so amazing. And I hope the match reflected that. Such a great match. And to think, you know, I've been waiting so many years to see it. And then you read the story in Bret Hart's book. And, you know, Vince, as soon as he saw you, literally doing flips like Mega Man, but you're 6'5", 275. It's just such an amazing athletic ability you have. One of the strongest men in the world. But yet you could do flips and you can go off the top rope and do a flip. And then you could do a front flip, literally like Mega Man. It's just, you know, crazy. So, you know, they say Bret is you know such a great in-ring wrestler, such a ring general. But Pat Patterson and Vince are backstage watching this, and you read Brett's book, and Pat is saying Brett is a future champion. Vince is saying you're the future champion. You're the future Hulk Hogan. Was that ever mentioned to you that after the match, Vince was like, "Man, I you know I love this guy. Look, you know he's got the size, the look, the athletic ability." Did he ever say anything like that to you? So that's interesting because I. You know, I don't recall anybody gushing over me verbally. I certainly knew people were watching me, and I had a lot of attention. But in terms of somebody giving me, like, an over-the-top appraisal like that was just, you know, no. But I don't think that was their style. They weren't prone to gushing or overly praising. And uh, and so, no, I don't recall that. I do not recall that. Um I, you know, I had audience with all those guys, including Pat Patterson, and um, and just kind of getting to know everyone. Um, but I felt, despite all the other things I've said, there's also an element of, I don't want to say matter-of-factness. They're professional. Everyone's professional. And so it's expected you're going to go out there and you're going to do something really, you didn't get there. I mean, it's hard to get in there. And so if you, if you got in there, you're, of course you're going to do something, um, that's, that's high level or elite. Otherwise you, you, you weren't there. Very, so very true. A matter yep. of fact element to it. So true. I just love the fact that, so many people can watch the match and get so many different things out of it. Like, you know, Vince is saying, you know, this guy has a great look, you know, look at his athletic ability. And, you know, Pat Patterson's watching and watching, well, oh, look at Brett's wrestling and, and different things like that. When you kind of, like you said, you were in Vegas, obviously for Starcast and you watch it back. What was your impression? Uh, obviously, you know, you, you like the match, it's a good match, but what were you thinking? Were you analyzing it all or were you kind of just taking it all in? No, I'm, I was analyzing it. Like I said, I was, um, I was impressed that Brett could lift me so easily. I was a lot mm. heavier and bigger than Brett was, but he, you know, it's that kind of wrestler strength where um, he'd been wrestling and lifting, as, uh, I mean, wrestling and lifting people, working with body weight for, you know, all his life. And so it just was amazing to me how me being 275 still wasn't a problem for him to lift me. But, uh, of course, he has great ring um, ability and, and general generalmanship um, or generalship. But, uh, you know, I got a chance to show my kind of raw athleticism. I think I got more polished later. I also had an inclination to want to... Um, improvise to want to take 
the sport of wrestling in a direction that I kind of liked uh, later. But at this point, you know, you're in this new situation and you're trying to do what, you know, what you've been taught. And um, when I watched it, I was, I saw certain spots where I thought I, I got more polished later on. Um, and, but I thought it was a, a great match and, and it was, it was great to watch after having not seen for so long, uh, that no one had seen it. Yeah. And I love that there would be, Network and WWE obviously did a documentary on it. They interviewed you. They interviewed Brett. It was called Holy Grail, WWE's most infamous loss match. And I just think it was so cool that you were a part of it as well. So how did that kind of all go down with them interviewing you for the documentary as well? Um, it was all really interesting. And like I say, it helps me to, to bring back some of the little anecdotes I have of different interactions going on there. I mean, I told you about, I, you know, when they were trying to figure out who I was going to go out with, uh, who I was going to compete against in the, the match. Um, and it ended up being Brett, but it could have been Hercules Hernandez. It could have been someone else. There were other things you would hear people. They're not talking to you, but they're talking like you're not there or they're 10 or 15 feet away and you, you hear something. Uh, I came from the bodybuilding world, so when I selected my trunks, you know, I went to a bigger trunk, like a wrestling-style trunk, but still probably not typical. So somebody else was was saying, he can't go out there in those trunks. Those trunks are too small. And I recognized also when Brett and I were in that match, and he goes to throw, uh, lift me back into the ring. He couldn't torture test my friggin' trunks. I'm glad those things were well-made and well-engineered <laughs> and didn't... Uh, didn't go uh, off because they freaking uh, they they definitely stood the the test. Um, so I get to show some of my explosiveness that most people don't have, and that uh, you know um, world champion uh, strength athletes have. I recently did the genetic testing, twenty three and Me, and they they will tell you all these um, genetic predispositions you have, and they say, well, wow, uh, there's various markers for the explosive gene, and I have all of them. And so, you know, that's something you're just born with. But yeah, you and express you, it. You express it by training it. Right. And the, there's no doubt about it. I mean, that's perfect if, if that test is accurate, which it seems like it is. That's a perfect description of kind of the athlete that you were and the amazing things you were able to do. As far as that documentary, were you surprised 33 years later that not only the match pops up, but that they wanted to do a documentary on it, that they really wanted to make a big focus out of this match? I'm appreciative about that. Um, I think that, that, you know, that makes me feel good that, uh, that they um, recognized and um, wanted to showcase what happened a long time ago, but the history of wrestling is interesting. And, um, of course, Brett rose all the way to the top with pro wrestling. And so, mm-hmm. um, that was also, uh, great. I, I mean, if I'd been more successful than I, I did wrestle for five years, so I had yeah. some success Yep, and I had a lot of interesting matches and who you get paired up with, you know, is, makes for a lot of those stories and the possibilities of what can happen. 
But it was great fortune to um, have crossed paths with Brett that night, and then uh, that's there, and it's there for all time. And uh, you know, it's, it was a significant match for me and for him. I one thing that fascinated me when we were at Starcast is Brett was talking about how he struggled to get recognition for his wrestling ability at some point in WWF. Now, I that was unknown to me. I assumed he just was always recognized as top tier. But apparently he also had to overcome a lot of uh, people who weren't, you know, didn't they didn't recognize what his style or ability was. And so that was that was a big wake up for me because I, I didn't know that. It, very, very true. And it, weird to me because, you know, as soon as I seemed like, man, you know, he's such a great wrestler, but that is true. He did have to overcome a lot. They kind of put him in a, in a pigeonhole and said, oh, you're just a tag team wrestler. And they kind of didn't, oh, I guess at first, have a big plan for him. And then eventually it kind of, they kind of grew and the crowd started getting into him. And they started realizing, man, this guy, you know, is great. But, you know, you mentioned a good point about it. it's kind of who you're paired up with as well because, you do go on a little bit of an undefeated streak. You're doing house shows. You're sporadically wrestling. But then you see you against Ted DiBiase, and that's a good match. And then Arn Anderson, and that's a good match. So there is points where, you know, you're having a lot of success, but you're right. It's who you're, you know, patched up with and paired up with because sometimes some guys don't have chemistry, and sometimes some guys just aren't going to have a good match. And where and where you're at at any given time and where, um, and where they're at. Now, for example... Uh, as a as an athlete, uh, uh, competitive athlete in lifting or or even football, you can really control your environment, and you learn that by eating this way and sleeping this way and training this way, all these things you can control, all these variables, you get a better performance, a measurable better performance. And so when I I came from that kind of a control situation um, into the wrestling match in Rochester with Brett. Uh, now with, with more experience, I think I, I, uh, got better in some respects, but the other thing that would happen once you worked for the WWF, you'd be on the road for 40 days in a row, going to an unknown arena, an unknown training facility, eating in an unknown location, uh, and you were perpetual motion. Uh, so it was difficult. A lot of those things an athlete normally gets to control you didn't get to control anymore. So after 30 days on the road, and also you've got all these personalities, you also, in your as a lifter, you get to sequester yourself away and kind of have your own mental peace. Well, when you're traveling with a bunch of other wrestlers, um, everybody is there. There's some, some really uh, sensible and bright guys, but there's also some lunatics there, and you're having to kind of deal with all of that and them and, it's um, it's a different world, and so after 30 days of that, you come into a match, and you've also been wrestling for 30 days, and you might have some injury, especially if you have a very physical style. <laughs> so that plays into it, too. And these guys also, they're going on the road, and they're leaving their families behind, and a lot of time mayhem is going on at home. And so they're, they've got some emotional problem or drama going on that's affecting what they're doing. And then there's also the nuance of pro wrestling where 
people are gaming the whole thing to try and ex- advance their career with this strategy or that strategy. Uh, and so there's all kinds of subterfuge and intrigue going on in there of, of a immeasurable degree uh, by many of the people. And so uh, even though, yeah, so it's just... Um, there's a lot going on, and a lot of those things really affect how a match turns out. So, so true. Now, when you're going through and, and you're wrestling, you're in the WWF, what is the reason that you kind of leave the WWF or get released or your contract ends? Like, what was the story of kind of the WWF exit? Okay, so I loved being in the WWF. I knew where I was, and I was appreciated being there. I also wrestled, I did some tours in Japan, both yes. with. Uh, with um, uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling, which I think evolved into Pride later on. And there were people who wanted to do more of a shoot-style wrestling in there, and they were doing some shoot matches, experimenting. And Hanoki, you know, did stuff. But anyways, then I also went with, uh, I think first I I went with uh, Giant Bubble, which is New Japan All Pro Wrestling. Also wrestled there with Ricky Choshu. And um, I did also um, a tour in um, in Austria and Germany with the Catches Catch Can with Big Otto Vance in uh, Vienna, Austria, and in Hanover. And then I was supposed to go to Berlin, but didn't. But anyway, so then I was uh, at some point back in the WWF, but I just kind of um, ran out of steam in there, and. I decide, you know, at that point, they did not want to employ me anymore. And so I guess the option was for me to go back to the minors and wrestle there. I'd already done five years, and I loved Los Angeles, and I decided just that I would just move down here and and do an acting career um, because I wanted to continue wrestling for WWF. uh, the you know the opportunity wasn't there anymore at that point, and uh, I'd already come and gone uh, at least once. And if things aren't perfect for you there, um, then you can tend to uh, you, know, you go somewhere else and hope that either you get better and the situation changes so you can come back in. And I did do it for five years, which is a pretty good commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came to LA, I also did a little bit of wrestling here with an upstart organization that uh, Big John Studd, who was a good friend of mine, was involved in. And uh, and then years later, Tito told me, came, was in Gold's Gym working out. He said, the situation's changed and you might want to consider coming back. And I thought about it, but for whatever reason, I didn't. I'd been out of it for quite a while at that point. But now, I hear, when I hear people talk about their experience in WWF, I hear a lot of times that people are talking about they went in and this promise was made or this expectation was set. Now, when I went in there, that never happened to me. Uh, most of my conversations with Pat Patterson, and I had had quite a number of them, and with Vince, were just conversational for the most part. I would just you know go and then I would talk to them about working out or training that we would talk about what was going on in my wrestling career or so on, but it was more, they talked to me more like 
in an abstract way about wrestling in general, or we would talk about not so much, but maybe a little bit of technical part. I remember one critical juncture later on when Vince said, and this was important, he said to me, it's time for you to assert yourself now. That was one of the strongest directives he ever gave me. But a lot of times, I just, it was more of a feeling of what was going on. But there was no concrete promise or anything, nor did I ask for one. But just what would make the match better? What could I do to make my performance better? And um, same with, with Pat Patterson. It was just like a general conversation, which is kind of my style. Uh, and I guess in that respect, theirs too. Do you have any regrets at all in the wrestling business? I would have loved to have been more um, successful because uh, I, of course, I would have liked to have been able to take better care of my parents, but that a success would have afforded me. And I think everyone feels that way. They'd like to be able to, you know, make use of whatever skills and, and a potential they have so they could be good to their family. Um, and I, uh, I would have liked to have had some more, you know, main event, some, some more matches, just matches with the, with more of the top guys. I'm grateful for the high end matches I did have, but, um, you know, and I did, I did get to wrestle in Japan and wrestle in WWF and, a lot of things that many people strove to do for their whole wrestling career and, and never able to achieve. But uh, I would like to have been able to do more, you know, to be like to be with like people like Hulk Hogan, um, you know, someone who really, uh, of course, on the other hand, you can fear success too, because if I'd wrestled longer, I may have completely worn my body out. It's, super hard on your body, super challenging to the body. But um, looking back at the whole thing, I think it it was an amazing experience and it affects the way I characterize and think of life now because wrestling's really um, unlimited in the directions it can go and does. And so it kind of expands your, your consciousness and your just what you think is possible, imagination and then realizing the things you can dream up. And uh, so all in all, I'm pretty grateful for what I experienced. But yeah, more success would have been, would have afforded uh, some other things that life has to offer too. But here we are. And I don't know if anybody's talked to you about like current wrestling, what's going on today, or if you follow it all, but feel like your style would fit in so good today because now there's so much about the athleticism, what these guys can do, and these are smaller guys. I mean, they're not 6'5", 275, doing flips and just having unbelievable strength. Like, you won't see a guy from the World's Strongest Man competition ever again doing front flips and flips off the top rope and moonsaults and all that crazy stuff. And literally, that front flip that Mega Man does that, that you could do, you know, you're not going to see that. It's almost like if you were around today, you would be, um, I think, the top of the heap because these guys that do these flips, you know, they're 5'7", five, 5'8", five, five, 
you know, five nine, hundred sixty five pounds, whatever they are, they're smaller guys. You're a big guy that can do this. I mean, it's impressive. Has anybody ever kind of said like, man, if you were around today, or you know, if it was a different time period, you, you know, you'd be killing it right now in professional wrestling? Well, um, I appreciate the observation. I'm glad you just said it. Uh, <laughs> that's that's terrific to know, and in a way, it's a certain validation of the kind of things that I wanted to do. That that's what the uh, what the audience also likes and, and that it resonates with the current um, generation of wrestlers. Also like certain aspects of martial arts um, that I wanted to introduce to wrestling and was also, you know, something of course that you saw in Japan and they liked. And um, but there definitely was certain styles that were, you know, more pushed and you see more in different regions. And if you tried to bring one area, one one style, like from Japan back over here. Not everybody would be so happy that you were doing it or accepted. But um, I guess that's part of the interest in the business too. But I'm, I appreciate you mentioning that, and I'm glad that uh, that's some validation of the choices I was making back then. Definitely, and, and it's it's crazy what you're able to do. Now, you know, you mentioned some. Uh, matches in Japan like Ricky Choshu, which was a good match, and obviously some other ones which were you know kind of hit or miss. And I guess it really like you're right says it depends on on the opponent. And this guy and that like I mentioned, obviously Arn Anderson, Ted DiBiase, Ricky Choshu, all great wrestlers had a great match. Bret Hart had a great match. Do you have some favorite matches that kind of stick out throughout your career? I do. One of the matches I liked um, was with Wajima which I think was, uh, people had a lot of contempt for the match. Mm-hmm. And they, I think it won maybe the worst match of the year. But there were certain elements of it. And I see that some things with the match that, <laughs> that could have been better. But there's certain elements of that match that I quite liked. <clears throat> I, I, uh, he was a great sumo wrestler, one of the top ten sumo wrestlers. And... Uh, I wanted to do a suplex, and uh, and uh, I liked that. Also liked uh, a jumping, a reverse jumping kick in that that I was quite pleased with. I was uh, in awe of his balance and just how um, how right on it he was with his balance the whole time out there. But, you know, as one athlete to another, I could recognize that and feel that. And, uh, you know, so what I enjoyed about it might be something that <clears throat> most people couldn't see or recognize, and, or, and it might just be an isolated part of the match, but it's something that, that I liked and I still remember. And so I, I like that match. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people, like Dave Meltzer, whoever else says it's a terrible match, not a great match, but it's interesting that, that you ended up like you know liking that match and you know have a different feeling it's weird you know some people have these different opinions and, and you know isn't that crazy pro wrestling is like that pardon it's crazy that pro wrestling is like that you know there's so many varying opinions yeah so there's the culture of pro wrestling and there's also then there's a style of wrestling that that a lot of these people who are judging it are have fully accepted and so they want to see you 
tell the match in that, you know, use those moves and use those sequences that are recognized in a is sort of uh, accepted as being the best way. And there was a part of me that bristled against that. Uh, I accepted, respected, uh, you know, the, the techniques I was taught in Calgary, but there's also a part of me that went like, wow, um, there's some other martial arts moves or sequences that I think actually happen uh, in street fights or in, in different competitive forms of, of martial activities and combatives that I think would also be relevant in this. And so I wanted to kind of include some of that. And yeah. And so I tried to do that, but not successfully. I mean, but it resonated with me. And so I wanted to do it and I did do it as much as I could, but it was not fully accepted at that time. So that's what happened. And, and, and because it wasn't, uh, or, um, for whatever reason, you know, I kind of petered out. Although, like I said, I did have some success. I wrestled for five years. That's mm-hmm. a whole career, right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, Not many guys can say they had a five-year run, especially coming in and out of WWF and having matches against some of those guys. Not a lot of people can say that. And doing uh, competing in the strongman circuit at the same time. So, um, Very impressive. Kind of, thank you. But that's kind of what it was. Is uh, I wanted to innovate, um, and then it's deciding how much of that you can will you can do. And yeah, but uh, it's also you know an interview like this, like I'm doing with you. I'll I'll think about the questions you asked me and the conversation we just had, and I'll have and I'll remember more. And um, so I, I enjoy the whole process that's going on now. Very cool, and like you said, not a lot of people, Ricky Choshu, one of the greatest of all time as far as Japanese wrestlers, and not a lot of people can say, oh, you're making my debut in Japan. Oh, yeah, I'm main eventing the Kurokan Hall in Tokyo. I mean, it's, it's for all Japan. I mean, it's pretty, pretty damn good, and, and if you think about it, not too many people are going to say that. Yeah, that's, uh, I feel fortunate to have gotten to uh, travel in those rarefied circles of of professional wrestling and so uh, yeah it's quite it was quite an experience and I hope that I gave something to wrestling as it gave something to me and I'm and I'm still there's still people out there wrestling fans who care and uh, I found also when I went to Stargate that I was the wrestling fans were pretty amazing most of them I was really quite intrigued to meet and uh, they were interesting folks themselves it is a quite and, and you know an eclectic group of fans, and I love how invested they were in you coming to to Starcast. Because not many times, like you hear that Tom McGee is going to be out signing or going to be doing wrestling conventions. Was that kind of your first dip back into the wrestling conventions? Because I don't remember seeing or hearing your name ever in the convention scene. Yeah, that was the first the first thing I had done in many decades. I've been completely what? invisible. Yeah, what does it feel to kind of get back there and kind of, you know, dip your toe in the water and get back in there? It's amazing how quickly it just feels almost familiar like before. That's that's amazing, too. You know, that you could stop for decades and then you're in there for 10 minutes and, and it feels like business as usual. 
It's a different kind of fan these days, Tom. I, I think even 10 years ago. I do agree with that. Yeah. I do agree with that. It's like I said when we started. It's a smarter fan. It's a fan that really appreciates the athleticism more and is really looking at the working style and where you can sit in a room and analyze a match that's you know thirty years old. I mean that's something special that I think the fan base is moving a lot towards now. You know, being that it it might be considered a niche product these days, but uh, I think that the fan has evolved from you know even five ten years ago. No, I, I, you're so right about that. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. The fans felt entirely different. The wrestlers felt, you know, the wrestling culture um, felt, well, a lot of them were from the former times, so no wonder that felt familiar. But you're right, the fans have really evolved. They absolutely have. So kind of as we wrap it up here, we like to finish it off with, you know, when you look back at the wrestling career and, you know, you put into great words throughout the interview. And again, for us, this is huge because, you know, we appreciate the story behind, you know, the hidden gem. We appreciate the journey that you had through Stampede and the WWF and then what you did in Japan and obviously all the accolades you had in your weightlifting and powerlifting career as well as your acting credits. But when you close the book on professional wrestling, you know, what do you want the fans to remember about the Mega Man, Tom McGee? Is it that you blended the strength and athleticism? You know, is it this hidden gem? You know, what would you want them to remember? They can take away from it what they, you know, what they would most value because everyone's a little bit different. But in a way, I think maybe from my point of view would be to look for the innovation, trying to push out in a slightly different direction. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. You know, we've we've beat it uh, over the head throughout this interview. Nobody was doing what you're doing at your size and, and what you could do in that ring, and that is so impressive. And uh, if that's and, what... and certainly the acrobatics, but not only that, but also trying to bring some of the martial arts moves into it and the different uh, combatives moves into it, which you see more and probably in the Japanese matches. Yeah, yeah, a lot of guys these days could learn from watching your matches and watching what you did. So, look, we really appreciate that you did come on with us, you know, and if you have anything else going on in the world of Tom McGee, you know, please feel free to share it. I know we just missed you at StarCast uh, a few weeks ago, but do you have anything else uh, going on uh, in the, the world of the Mega Man, Tom McGee? Well, um, uh, I'll let you know if something comes up, and uh, it was great talking to you guys. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.